0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
2: Host this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. How
0: are this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 19th. Today, The Post launches its new space podcast, Moonrise. And the lasting image of one astronaut's view of home
1: Backlight. Okay. Engine stop. Control
2: both. Auto. Decent engine command override off. Engine arm off. We've had shutdown. We
1: copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.
0: Fifty years ago this weekend, the United States achieved an extraordinary feat of exploration.
1: Um, at the foot of the ladder,
0: Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. That's one small step for man,
2: one giant leap for mankind.
0: We all know the story. A charismatic young president responds to the threat from America's nemesis, the Soviet Union, and throws down a challenge to the nation.
2: I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth.
0: And in less than a decade, it happens. But what if that's not the whole story? What if the path to that spectacular achievement wasn't as straight as we thought it was? What would we find if we rewound the story we think we know?
2: Who are you and what do you do? My name is Lillian Cunningham, and I'm a reporter at The Post. If you listen to The
0: Post's other podcasts, which you totally should, you almost certainly know Lily's voice.
2: I've kind of had the good fortune of being able to carve out this journalistic role at The Post where I go back and dive into these tales from American history.
0: Lily was the host of two podcasts that you may know, Presidential and Constitutional. And now, for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, Lily is back with a new podcast that launches today. It's called Moonrise.
2: You know, I think a lot of the coverage that we get of Apollo is about how we went to the moon, and that's a fascinating story about engineers and astronauts, but our podcast is really about why we went to the moon. It's really the story of a whole different cast of characters, presidents, politicians, science fiction writers, Soviet rocket engineers. We tend to think in the United States of this like race to the moon and this dream of moon travel, as kind of emerging with Kennedy's pronouncement that we should go to space. But to me, one of the really interesting things that I discovered was just like, what a long history there is both in America and across the world of this dream of humans going to the moon, specifically.
0: And you can hear this sense of wonder and romance in one of the first episodes of Moonrise.
2: The dream of going to the moon really is a lot older than people think. This is Margaret Weidekamp. She is a space historian and a curator at the National Air and Space Museum in D.C. Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon. It was published in 1865. Jules Verne is French, but he set his book in the United States right after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And the story is about a group of American weapons enthusiasts who hatch a plan to shoot three men to the moon out of a giant cannon. Now keep in mind, this is more than a hundred years before the U.S. would actually send humans there. Here's an excerpt from the book. No words can convey the slightest idea of the terrific sound. An immense spout of fire shot up from the bowels of the earth, as from a crater. The earth heaved up, And with great difficulty, some few spectators obtained a momentary glimpse of the projectile victoriously cleaving the air in the midst of the fiery vapors.
0: Because I think that's totally counter to how most people kind of imagine it. Like, at least from my understanding, which frankly comes a lot from the movie Hidden Figures (laughs) about the human computers um, and their whole backstory, but it seemed like this was really born out of Sputnik and that Russia sends these satellites into space and that America sort of sees it as this existential threat. And that's when people really get their act together and say like, oh, this is something that we need to do. We need to go to the moon. But what you're saying is that people had been thinking about this for a long time before that and had those ambitions even before Russia sent Sputnik into the air.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, certainly like the dream of moon travel existed way before Sputnik. Just as a fun example, there were theme parks throughout the United States, like at Coney Island and the original Disneyland that had rides where you like simulated flying to the moon. So these are are way before Sputnik launched. So that dream was there pre-Sputnik. But I do think we tend to sort of learn that the space race story starts with that moment. And there are a lot of Things that I think we need to correct about that narrative or clarify, one of them is people were not immediately terrified in the U.S. when Sputnik launched. When Sputnik first launched, there were actually some polls taken about, you know, how Americans responded to that moment. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik. And in the first few days after Sputnik, by and large, people either didn't care at all or thought, wow, what an incredible human achievement that we have a satellite in space now, even though it's a different country that did it. Yeah,
0: even though they're Russians and they're apparently our enemy.
2: very quickly, it did turn into something that sparked a lot of fear in the U.S., but It was very strategically and politically motivated.
0: As Lily started researching, she learned about the role that Lyndon B. Johnson played before he became Kennedy's vice president. Johnson helped plant the seed for the space race, and that was in direct response to Sputnik.
2: There's a fascinating story of how Lyndon Johnson, at the time he's a senator, President Eisenhower's in power. He's a Republican. Lyndon Johnson is a Democrat. And Johnson basically, like, constructs this plan to beat up on Eisenhower politically by turning Sputnik into this sign that, like, we're falling behind Mm. and Eisenhower isn't being aggressive enough in terms of national security. And... Johnson held a lot of hearings on Capitol Hill about it. And it did end up pretty quickly turning what hadn't originally been a super scary moment for Americans into something that symbolized what we now sort of peg as like the beginning of like real Cold War fears. That's fascinating that this was a narrative that was kind
0: of pushed because it was politically expedient for Johnson but before he was, you know, when he was still in the Senate, which I think speaks to the extent to which this is also a story about presidents and politicians. And I feel like that's something that I haven't really thought about before, because when I think of presidents and their and their role in sending people to space, I just think of that, that speech that Kennedy made The like— we'll go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard and something, something else. I can't really remember the rest.
2: But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We're now at this moment, 50 years after the Apollo 11 moon landing, where we're hearing President Kennedy's We Choose to Go to the Moon speech quoted everywhere we turn. You know, we've really built an enormous myth around Kennedy's sort of noble pursuit and, you know, call to moon travel. When in reality it turns out, and this came out because there are tapes from the White House that were declassified not that long ago actually from the Kennedy administration. No sir, I do not. I think it is one of the top priority programs, but I think it's very important to recognize here. Where we suddenly got all this insight into the closed-door conversations Kennedy was having with advisors at this moment of deciding about going to the moon.
1: We don't know a damn thing about the surface of the moon, and we're making the wildest guesses about how we're going to land
2: on the moon. And it turns out, I mean, Kennedy, he he, he basically says, he it's, he's on tape basically saying, like, I couldn't care less about space. <laughs> really? Um, yeah.
1: Everything that we
2: do ought to really be tied into getting onto the moon. Ahead of the Russians. Because otherwise, we shouldn't be spending this kind of money because I'm not that interested in space. I think it's good. I think we ought to know about. It. We're ready to spend a reasonable amounts of money, but we're talking about these fantastic
1: expenditures, which wreck our budget and all these other domestic programs. And the only justification
2: for it, in my opinion, to do it is because we hope to beat them. It's pretty striking tape, and it, it busts a little bit of this like beautiful narrative we have about him sort of inspiring a nation to go there. But if he didn't care about it that much, then why was he kind of the
0: the biggest public salesman of this idea?
2: So there are a lot of reasons behind that. One of them is he did really care about beating the Soviets, and he cared about the optics of beating the Soviets. The fact that the moon is how they would beat them was, you know, kind of secondary. Kennedy was open to a lot of ways that they could sort of on the world stage demonstrate that the United States was ahead of the Soviet Union and it was suggested to him by advisors and actually by Lyndon Johnson who was then his vice president that again like space is a great way to do that it's a great political tool so Kennedy signed on to that idea and but the interesting thing is that he actually pretty soon afterwards started Backtracking on it. He went to Khrushchev a number of times and tried to convince Khrushchev that the Soviet Union should actually partner with the United States to go to the moon because he realized like maybe we actually aren't setting ourselves up for success here he realized how expensive it was going to be and started regretting the amount of money that would be going toward it.
0: And there were people at the time who who questioned the amount of money that the U.S. Absolutely. government was spending on, on the space program.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another myth also that I think has really sort of taken hold in our country today is that like the Apollo moment was just this moment of great like unity in the country. And it's true, you look back at the polls and... With the exception of the actual moment when they landed on the moon, which, yes, people did tune into televisions for that moment. People were into it. Yeah, but when you look across the program all the way up until before they went and, like, right after they got back, a lot of people did not support it. They did not think it was the best use of funds. Of course, this is also when the Vietnam War is going on and, you know, the country is— mired in civil rights protests. And there were a lot of things that people felt were sort of more important in terms of our financial investment, but also emotional investment than landing a man on the moon.
0: I'm curious if hearing these stories that kind of complicate this narrative, does that make you think differently about... America's space history or about the achievement that was
2: landing on the moon? I don't think that some of the nuance and complexity that really exists around the story diminishes the fact that it was actually a really incredible scientific achievement. (music) You know, in a way, it makes the story sort of more interesting and more remarkable that it wasn't just this sort of perfect straight line from a pronouncement that we should do this incredible thing to the achievement of doing it. It's pretty easy to forget, but very important to remember that all of the technology for the space race and the motivations for the space race all came out of this really sort of dark place of building up nuclear war technology. I mean, it all came out of building ballistic missiles and atomic bombs. The, this accomplishment didn't just happen kind of in spite of that craziness. It happened in large part because of it. A lot of the, the chaos of the Cold War and the chaos of Post World War II America is like directly what led to some of these ambitions.
0: Lillian Cunningham is the host of Moonrise, a new podcast from the Washington Post. You can find the link to the series at WashingtonPost.com Moonrise or listen to it on your favorite podcast app. Yes,
2: Columbia the high gate, over. Columbia, this is Houston. Reading you loud and clear over. Yeah, radio
0: loud and clear. How's it going? I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene.
2: That's all right. I
0: don't mind a bit. Uh, I believe they're setting up the flag now.
2: How is the
1: quality
0: of the TV? Oh, it's beautiful, Mike. It really is. Oh, geez. That's great. Is the
1: lighting halfway
2: decent?
1: Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes. Beautiful. Just beautiful.
0: And now, one more thing. The image of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon is probably the most famous photo from the Apollo mission. But art critic Sebastian Smee says that, for him, the most powerful picture was taken the year before, on the Apollo 8 mission. Not a photo of the moon, but a photo of Earth.
1: It shows this beautiful blue planet, the Earth, just above the horizon of the moon.
0: That photograph became known as Earthrise. It was taken on Christmas Eve 1968.
1: It's just a, a, an entrancing image because it shows the Earth as the only sort of spot, if you like, of color in what is otherwise a, a black or grayscale world. And you see the blue, obviously, as well as the white of the clouds and some green. And I think it's an image of incredible vulnerability and, and, and delicacy.
0: Earth coming up. Wow, isn't that pretty?
1: And it was just incredibly moving to the astronauts who saw it. They were surprised to see it out the window of Apollo 8.
0: You got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color, quick. Oh, will you? man, that's
1: correct. Cool. Quick. The image was taken by the astronaut William Anders on board Apollo 8. And it's really poignant in a way because, you know, I I think everyone obviously was incredibly excited about the whole space race and about the whole goal of getting closer and closer to the moon. And you can understand why it's an extraordinary achievement. But having seen the Earth from a distance, they realized that they'd come all this way only to realize that what really mattered in a sense was the Earth. I think we
2: were all... uh taken aback because there had been no planning discussion of seeing the Earth. Uh, we were trained uh, to a degree to explore the Moon, to comment on the topography and geology if you will, of the Moon, and when I saw the Earth rise and then also pictures of the small Earth from a lunar distance, it crossed my mind that you know here we'd spent all this time studying the Moon and what we were doing was discovering the Earth.
1: So Frank Borman, the commander of the mission, uh, had this beautiful quote where he said, it was the most beautiful, heart-catching side of my life. He said, uh, it was one that sent a torrent of nostalgia, of sheer homesickness surging through me. It was the only thing in space that had any color to it. Everything else was either black or white, but not the earth. You just feel this, this incredibly amazing thing of these astronauts having left Earth and being so close to their heart's desire. They'd been trying to get to the moon for so many years, but they had this flood of nostalgia and homesickness. I, I just think that that is really such a turning point almost in human history, the idea that you could get that perspective on your own home. this this strange planet that we're on and get a sense of how rare and how precious it is.
0: Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, Ted Muldoon, and our intern, Rennie Spernowski. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.